Today is the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we could be spending a great deal of time for each part, almost each line in the Lord's Prayer. It, this was a very difficult message to put together because there was so much I wanted to include in here, but today I thought it best to, since I'm going on vacation, I thought, well, let's just cover all of it as a survey at once. And so if you would turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, Matthew chapter 6, and our scripture reading will be verses 5 through 13. And as a reminder of the context, this is in the middle of the Lord's, uh, excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had just been, uh, was, it's in the middle of a section where he was talking about uh, fasting and uh, giving, uh, almsgiving. And here he gives instructions to his disciples on how to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. The words of Jesus. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, Father, we thank you, having heard your word. And though, Father, it's a familiar passage for many of us, we pray that here in these next few moments, uh, as we reflect uh, on what these mean and how we might apply them to our own chief exercise of faith, as Calvin called it, uh, our prayer to you, our pouring out of our souls to you. And so we pray that you would teach us uh, something new this morning in your word, and we pray that as we, um, that, that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer typically consists of, or the way it's been often uh, broken down before, is that it has three parts. And there's a preface to it, and then six petitions, and a conclusion. So all told there, there are eight, eight different lines that we could focus on. And it's, as I mentioned this earlier, it's not, um, not uh, an overstatement to say that we could actually spend one sermon looking at each one of these. We're not going to do that today. Um, I do have to take Emmy to camp. So we're going to go through these pretty quickly. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you all for all eight, the preface, the six petitions and the conclusion for all eight of those. I'm just going to um, give you the some reflections that help me to think about as I am praying the Lord's Prayer. And so uh, we're going to expand these quite a bit, and then I'm going to be giving you a lot of scripture 
uh, for these to just kind of look at it all over. And I put some of them on the slide, but we'll move through these kind of quickly. Okay, so are you tracking with me? I feel like it's a little bit of the drinking of the fire hose kind of morning, but I uh, just um, pray that you, we, we track together. So let's begin. The first one, which is the preface. That is our Father in heaven. The beginning of verse 9 there. Our Father in heaven. For prayer to be heard, you must be his child. Now, some, some of you might go, wait a second here. Um, what does that mean? I, uh, let, me, let me explain a little bit. There, I think that there's a misconception that is often um, used today. And this is this statement or phrase, or, and maybe you've all heard it, or some variation or some form of it. And that is this. We are all God's children. Have you heard of this? That everybody, it's kind of a, a term for a common shared humanity. That everybody is God's, God's child. Everyone is a child of God. And I think I understand what they mean when they say that. But biblically speaking, biblically speaking, if you are in an unregenerate state, God is not your father. Okay? If you are not in union with Jesus Christ through faith, then God is not your father. I think the scriptures make this, this quite clear in a number of places. Jesus, in John's gospel, chapter 8, he's dealing with the Pharisees and the religious authorities, and he's debating with them. And um, they kind of make the claim, well, we're, we're Abraham's children, which was shorthand to say we're, we're children of God. We're children of the, the one true God, Abraham's father. And it, Jesus says to them, well, if you, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And he goes on to say, he goes, you're not doing the work that Abraham did, which is to believe. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. You're not doing the works that Abraham did. Instead, you're doing the works your father did. Remember when we looked at this in John's gospel. And they object. They go, no, no, we only have one father and that's God. And Jesus says to them, well, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And he goes on to say, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He goes on and says, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar and the father of lies. Here Jesus is telling the religious leaders, the experts in the scripture, that they are not children of God. Elsewhere, Jesus goes, uh, he says, well, God could raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. Just having a shared humanity doesn't mean that God is your father. Indeed, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, of the Gentiles' unregenerate state, out of union with Christ, they are in Adam. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience. Not sons of God, you're sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. If you were to use a phrase 
for the common shared humanity, we wouldn't say that you're children of God. You would say, well, actually, the, the, what we all share is that we're all, by nature, children of wrath. Which even heightens, heightens even more the, the pure grace of God to offer salvation to his children. So when I say this, when, so for your prayer to be acceptable, you have to be his child. Well, how? Well, through repentance and faith, believing in Christ Jesus, his only son. That is what enables us, through union with faith in Christ, we have his spirit given to us, and his spirit enables us to say, Abba, Father. And so Jesus says, in the beginning of our prayer, he says, so our prayer begins with our Father. We could have used so many different terms as the term for adoration or the term for address to God. He could have used Almighty. He could have used King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And it's totally appropriate for us to do so. But he gave us Father. If we are regenerated and born again by the Spirit of God and we have faith in Jesus Christ, his Son, then we can come to God through Christ with reverence. John chapter 1 Verses 12 through 13, to all who did receive him, that is Jesus the word, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Or as John writes in his letter, chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And how is this done? Well, it's through faith, receiving Jesus Christ in faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So what better way to begin our prayers than by acknowledging from the outset that God is our heavenly father who has made us his children, not by anything deserving in us, but purely out of his covenantal love through sending his son, Jesus Christ, who died to bring us to him. In my mind, all of that idea is embedded in that first word. Our Father. This is the preface. What better way to begin our prayers? That's just the preface. We, let's move on to the first petition. Again, I have to get Emmy to camp today. Sometime today. First petition is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And if you could, if you have the ESV here, probably if you're using another translation, it might have a, a footnote there or something to kind of explain this. This is hallowed be your name is what it says in the ESV text part. But if there's a little footnote there and it reads, it reads this, uh, or it could be rendered, let your name be kept holy or let your name be treated with reverence. Or one translation has it, I like this one too, may your name be honored. All of those capture the sense here because the word there is the verb for to make holy. Hagiadzo, to separate, to sanctify, to consecrate. 
And this is a passive imperative. So Jesus is telling his disciples for God to, uh, to make his name be honored and reverenced and, uh, and declared as holy. Which is really, the background here is really the third commandment. The third commandment is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the, the positive of the, basically the third commandment. He's saying, Lord, let your name be set apart and revered as holy. And, your, and the name of a person not, is not just what somebody calls you. The name of a person encompasses who they are. In the ancient world, it was very significant to one's identity. So dishonoring God's name is a very serious offense. The righteous honor God's name. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So honoring and setting apart God's name is associated with worship and adoration. So here you have, at the very beginning of this prayer, you have the intimacy and closeness with God represented in the preface, our Father. And it's balanced with the proper reverence and awe that the one true sovereign God requires. May your name be set apart as holy and revered. Friends, I, I say this often, that we can... Uh, pray with boldness we could come with boldness before the throne the writer of Hebrews chapter 4 I love this passage I love Hebrews I love this passage let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need right we draw near to God we draw near with confidence we draw near with confidence because of what Christ has done. And we draw near to the throne of grace. But we never, but we must ever be mindful that it's still a throne. And a king is sitting on it. So we have the intimacy and closeness that we have with Father, with our Heavenly Father, but with proper, proper reverence and awe. So this first petition then corresponds really well with the, the A that we learned from Acts last week, the adoration. Begins with worship and adoration. Then we orient ourselves accordingly. Now here's the second petition. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now it might be helpful here to be mindful of that there's a couple of kingdoms. There's a couple of reigns and rule that are happening in the world. For instance, Satan has a kingdom. Might be helpful to remember that. Just two chapters earlier, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, the devil took him up to a very high mountain. You remember this? And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said, all of these I will give to you if you just fall down and worship me. In Luke's version of this account, he says, To all of this I will give you, and all of their authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will, then if you fall down and you worship me. Okay. Now, um, 
as we've seen many other times with Satan and his words, uh, he's a liar and the father of lies, but he's a liar and a father of lies by, by misrepresenting or twisting the truth. There is a measure of truth in the fact that he, for a time, actually has a reign or a kingdom in the world. Did he have the authority to give that to Christ? That's another question. But this is affirmed elsewhere in scripture. John chapter 12. Jesus refers to him as the ruler of this world will be cast out. Or John chapter 12 verse 14, or 14 verse 30. I will talk to you. Uh, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Or 1 John chapter 5. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Or Ephesians 2 that we just read a moment ago. He's described as the prince of the power of the air. Or 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Or Ephesians chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Okay? So it might be helpful as we're praying your kingdom come it might be helpful to think actually there is a kingdom in this world that is not christ's and indeed based kind of on the prayer itself we're we're praying for the kingdom of god to come in fullness in the world satan has a kingdom but its reign is restricted by god himself but it exists and one of the ways that the New Testament speaks of a believer's salvation is um, a transferal from one kingdom to the other. We saw this in our liturgical prayer in our assurance of the gospel earlier. Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. At Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, when the Lord Jesus appears to him, Paul recounts this story. It's recounted once in Acts chapter 9, and then it's account, recounted a couple of other times. And in Acts chapter 26, he says it again, and he gives, Jesus gives him his mission. He gives Paul what his mission is going to be. And it says this, and I, to the Gentiles I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness. Okay, so it's helpful to keep in mind Satan has a kingdom, but God has a kingdom. And it's coming, it has come, but it hasn't come completed in its fullness yet. One of the ways that we speak of the kingdom of God as it has come in the person of Jesus is to speak of it as already and not yet. And this is what the people of Israel were longing for. They were waiting. There's long been a promise that there was going to be a king that was going to come and that the kingdom was going to be established. Second Samuel chapter 7, you have the promise given to David of the anointed one, the Messiah would come. And Israel was longing and waiting for this. And with Jesus' coming, you have that fulfillment. He is called the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. 
So the kingdom of God has come, in a sense, in its present sense, with the coming of Jesus. Remember John the Baptist's preaching, and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus turns around after he's baptizing, and he's going around sharing, and he says the same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the kingdom of God will come in its fullness only when Christ returns in the future. So, keep in mind, Satan has a kingdom, but God has a kingdom. His kingdom is already here, but also not yet. And so Jesus is telling us and his disciples to pray for it. Prayer is a part of our spiritual warfare. Prayer is a part of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Speaks of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keeping alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So that is what I think of when we think of Lord, your kingdom come. And I think it's a reminder for us. Of the reality of the spiritual warfare warfare that's taking place. So that's the second petition. Here's the third petition. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, the will of God, God's purpose and his plan. And it's helpful to speak of God's will in a couple of ways. The fancy old way of saying it would be to, a distinction needs to be made between God's decretive will and his prescriptive will. Or we could say his secret will, his purpose and plan that he hasn't revealed to his creatures, but there is also a revealed will that he tells us what his will is for us. There's, there's not two wills in God, there's just one. And the great illustration, I believe that this is Gustin, I don't remember who did it, but the great illustration of this is for, is for the moon. When you look up at the moon, have you ever noticed it's always the exact same pattern on it? You know, Jack and Jill with the pail or whatever, you know, on the moon. We never see from our perspective on earth, you never see the dark side of the moon. You never see the back side. And I think that's a great picture. It's still one moon. But there's a side we see and a side we don't see. So it is with the will of God. It's, all, it's one will or plan for God, but there's a side that we see and a side that we don't see. And we are called to pray that God's will in heaven will be manifested here on earth. And this is not only a prayer for God to bring a, uh, to pass his purpose and his plan on earth in human history. It's also our prayer of submission to it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a, a, a naked appeal to say, and Lord, let your will be done on earth. It's, it involves our submission to it. Hence, as it says in the, the catechism question, what do we pray for in the third petition? That, by God, that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things, as the angels do in heaven. That, that's the answer. What does it teach us? 
that God by his grace would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things. So when are you praying the third partition? Are you praying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Are you saying, and I'm submitting to it? Lord, you have revealed things in your word, what your will is. And I'm submitting myself to it. And this is exemplified so well for us in our, our Lord's own submission. On the eve before his crucifixion, Jesus submits to the Father's will for this plan of redemption. Matthew chapter 26. After the Lord's Prayer, or after the Lord's Supper in the room, they, they sing a hymn, then they go out to the garden. And then Jesus says to his disciples, wait here, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And just stay and just kind of watch with me. Just kind of pray for me. And he goes a little further, falls on his face, and he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Moments later, he does it a second time. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Three times it happens. A little later, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Our Lord, agonizing in his human nature is what was to come for him shortly. He knows all things. He knows, he knows what was about to happen to him. And he was even wishing, according to his human nature, to avoid it. But nevertheless, knowing what was about to happen, submitting himself to the divine purpose of redemption that God had planned for him, that God had offered, that he offered himself to be delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, as Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. And when I was, this little side note here, when I was in Israel, I had the chance to go to this garden where we're pretty sure this is where he was. And it, uh, it's up on the slope of the hill that you have to travel quite, you know, ways down the hill to the valley and then up the, the hill to where Jerusalem was, which is where Jesus was going to be crucified. So it's kind of up on the slope of this hill near the top. And our tour guide took us from that thing. And we just did a little quick, little short hike to get to the top of that hill which was maybe, you know, a couple hundred yards at most. And then it was wilderness, barren desert. Everything was kind of green because of the rain comes in and then waters all of this. But at this peak, it like stopped and it's dry and desert. And that is where the criminals would go to escape, you know, to hide out in the wilderness. You know, the, the, the story about the, the man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the story in these falls into the hand of the robbers. Everybody would have understood that story because that's where they all ran to go hide. And I remember thinking Jesus was just a dash away from getting out of it. And he submitted himself to it. Oh, that that would be an example for us. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we follow our Lord's example. And submit to the, the Lord's will. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 124, 
has this as the answer to the question, what's the third petition? Grant that we and all men may renounce our own will and without murmuring obey thy will, which is only good, that everyone may attend to and perform the duties of his station and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels do in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, here's the fourth petition. The fourth petition is, give us this day our daily bread. The first three petitions dealing with God's glory. These last three petitions are dealing with our good. And we dare not get those out of order. This is the proper order. First, we pray to glorify God before we petition him for his goods. We prioritize the heavenly and eternal before we move to the earthly and the temporal. And the first of these concerns our basic material needs, the needs of our body. Give us this day our daily bread. Though it mentions bread, you know, a staple in the ancient world, it's probably a staple in most of the world even today. We must uh, think beyond this. This is not just, uh, not just bread, and it's not even just food in general. It's kind of a, a synecdoche for a, a standing word that represents all the things necessary for life in this world. Say, Lord, provide to us what, you, what we need in this world. And the daily, this could be translated various ways too, and you might see that in your, your footnote there, could be give us today our bread for the day or give us today our bread for tomorrow. Um, but either way, it's, it's kind of a daily, moment-to-moment -moment recognition that God is the one who provides everything that we need. Jesus teaches us uh, that we can confidently ask God to provide for our daily needs, and he expands on this a little bit later in this chapter. Notice chapter, verse, 20, uh, verse 25 to the end of chapter 6, that heading there is do not be anxious. Because don't be anxious about what you, what you eat or what you drink or what you will wear. Because the Lord knows what you need, even before you ask it. But he tells us to ask it. And so we pray for our needs. D.A. Carson said, we must pray for our needs, not our greeds. Despite what many famous preachers who puts lots of clips, clips on Instagram might tell you. We pray for our needs, not our greeds. But mostly this prayer is a recognition that everything, even something common as bread, comes from God's hand and not merely from ours. I think of De Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is preaching to Israel and he says, take care lest you forget you're about ready to go into the land that the Lord your God is promising you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to be blessed. Just walk in his covenant and you will be provided for. And he says, but take care that when you're in there, you're going to forget the Lord your God. And then when you get in there and he says, and you've eaten and are full and have built houses and you live in them, that you'll forget the Lord your God who led you. The Lord your God who brought you water. You'll forget the Lord your God who fed you in the wilderness with manna. Daily, I might add, remember? Was there every day. Beware, he says, lest you say in your heart, my power and might 
of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And he says, for you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Every, so when you pray, Lord, give us our, our daily bread. Give us this, our daily bread. It's not just a request for him to provide our needs. It is that. It's also a subtle reminder and acknowledgement that everything that we get comes from him, comes from his hand. As James says, 117, every good and per every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing you have ever received primarily came from God's generous hand. And our Lord's Prayer reminds us of that. That's the fourth petition. Here's the fifth petition. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I love this part. This fifth petition now, he moves from our, he moves from our bodily physical needs in the fourth petition now to uh, a reminder of our soul's needs. And it's just a basic appeal to forgive us for our debts. And if you go to Luke's version of this, it says transgressions, which is the part that we pray. Forgive us our transgressions as we also have forgiven those who transgress against us. And notice the two go together. This is all part of one petition. Forgive us our debts as we also for, have forgiven those who transgress against us. Jesus expands on this relationship between the forgiveness that we receive and the forgiveness that we give. Later in Matthew's gospel, chapter 18, he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. There's a king who's settling accounts and the servant owed 10,000 talents, he says. 10,000 talents. A talent was a monetary unit um, that was 20 years wages for a laborer. Okay? So let's say, let's put it, let's put it in like today's term. Like one talent would be, let's put it at 50,000. Okay? I used to tell this story years ago, and it was 30,000. But it's inflation. So... <laughs> It's 50, we'll move it to 50,000. One talent is $50,000 American, okay? 10,000 talents, any math people in here? I don't know, most of you are homeschooled, we'll see. $500 million, half a billion, half a billion. So a king is settling accounts and one of his servants owes him half a billion dollars. And he throws himself at the, the king in just mercy. Please forgive. And he says, okay, I forgive you all of your debt. That's how Jesus sets up the story. Okay? Half a billion. Have you ever had a debt forgiven? Have you ever had a big debt forgiven? Have you ever had half a billion forgiven? So then this guy, just cheerfully going away, finds another one of his colleagues who owes him a hundred denarius, Jesus says. A denarius was one day. Okay? Not 20 years, one day. So using the $50,000, he says he owes him a hundred denarius. That's 19,000. I mean, that's no small amount. 
$19,000, but compared to half a billion. And that guy shakes him down. He says, I'm going to throw you into jail until you pay me every last bit. And you know how the story goes. Word comes back to the king that this had happened. And Jesus tells this story to, re to remind his followers that he requires his followers to forgive. He requires those who have been forgiven to forgive. Or Mark's gospel, Mark chapter, or excuse me, uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 7. Jesus is dining with a Pharisee. He's eating in his house. And behold, a, a woman of the city, it's a euphemism, who was a sinner, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It's very expensive. And she's standing behind Jesus. She's weeping and she wets his feet. She's anoint, basically cleaning his feet and anointing his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. This is scandalous. And the Pharisees like, if this guy were a prophet, I mean, I hear this guy's a prophet. If this guy were a prophet, he would know who this woman is or what sort of woman this is. For she is a sinner, he says. And Jesus says, Simon, I love it because he didn't, Simon the Pharisee doesn't say this to Jesus. Jesus knows what he's thinking. And he says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> when Jesus says, I have something to say to you. That's awesome. Uh, he answers, say it, teacher. A certain money lender, you know, he had two debtors. It's a similar story. It's not it's the same. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So the dollar amount doesn't really matter. It's just know that there's a, a, a difference. You know, guy owned a tenth as much as another guy. But neither of them could pay. Could pay. He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of you think would love him more? Jesus is saying, is that possible? Is there, is there a correlation between your love by how, how much gratitude you would have because of the debt, the size you had been forgiven? And so Simon, a Pharisee, says, well, I suppose the one who had the larger debt canceled. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. And then turning to the woman, doesn't explain anymore, he turns to the woman, and then he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I uh, came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus is laying this little principle down here. Now, is it true that the Simon the Pharisee here has not been forgiven much? In the grand scope of things, he is still a child of wrath. If he didn't believe, he has, in God's sight, he is as, as much debt, debt as the sinful woman is. He only thinks, he only thinks that he's been forgiven little. But if you think that you're forgiven little, you'll love little. But if you think that you have been forgiven much, you will love much. And he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith is saved, you go in peace. 
a word she would have never heard in that day. Never. Well, what a beautiful picture. One of the genuine repentance and trust, the receiving of grace and forgiveness for genuine repentance and trust. Yet, the principle that Jesus is driving home, forgiven little, forgives little. Forgiven much, forgives much. Forgiving others is not the means by which we merit our forgiveness. Forgiving others is a reflection of what we've been forgiven. It's the reflection of a repentant heart. It's the reflection of a regenerate heart, which, which makes forgiveness possible. So those who have experienced God's forgiveness and they understand it and know it will forgive correspondingly. And Jesus implies that those who are unwilling to forgive have not perceived the mercy and grace that they really have been offered. So, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Praying to be forgiven and to forgive reminds us of this. That's the fifth petition. And now the sixth petition. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, the fourth petition is dealing with the material needs of our body. But then he goes in the next two petitions are dealing with the needs, the goods that we need from God's hand for our soul. And it, it really is two, two parts to this. For lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so uh, the catechism question puts it in, in, breaks this down into two different uh, answers. We pray that God would keep us from being tempted to sin. Okay. That's the first one. We pray, God, that you would keep us from being tempted to sin. However, there comes times in every Christian's life where we will be tempted to sin and even fall into sin. Chapter 5 of the Confession says, The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his children for a time to experience a variety of temptation and the sinfulness of their own hearts. God allows that. It, according to his purposes, which sometimes we will not understand until we see him face to face in glory, we will not understand. Perhaps it's to, as it says, to chastise for former sins or to make, and this one I resonate with, to make them aware of the hidden strength of their corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled you ever think like you've been going along really well in your Christian life and then fall into something and then go, oh, man. And maybe that that's the purpose. To humble, to remind yourself like, boy, I need thy grace every hour. Which then should lead us to go even to, as the, the confession says, he also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on him to sustain them. So the prayer is really, Lord, keep us from being tempted. However, sometimes we do fall into those temptations. And so there's a second half, they say. The second thing we, we, we have behind this prayer is, uh, is that God should support and deliver us when tempted. 
So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we think, Lord, keep us from being tempted. But if we are tempted, that you would support and deliver us in it. I love these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, he's, he, he has seen a vision, goes into this, this vision, and he goes, but to keep me conceited because of the greatness of the revelations I've given, he goes, a, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it, that that thorn should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You ever pray for the Lord to just remove something from your life that's difficult, that's challenging? Maybe you have a, a disability or an injury or a long-term sickness or something and that you're like, Lord, if you would just take this away from me. Maybe God's word for you might be, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul goes, well, then I boast all the more of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest in me. So lead us not from temptation, but deliver us from evil. And lastly, let me give you the conclusion. Notice here at the end of verse 13, there is a, a footnote there in the ESV. So you might need to look at the bottom here. Where it says, mine says footnote five. I'm not sure what yours says, but some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, many of you have grown up listening or, you know, praying the Lord's Prayer. You've, you've included that. We include it when we say it together. But. Uh, but you're looking at this going, wait a second, at the end of verse 3, it's not there. They put it in a footnote. What is going on here? Well, this is a, a textual issue. The earliest manuscripts don't have those words that are in that footnote. They don't have the end of, that, uh, the end of verse 13. And this is getting into the, this issue known as textual criticism. Now, you might have a lot of questions like, well, how did they get there? Why are they still there? I, I have to take Amity Camp. I can't, <laughs> I, I can't do it all. I would love to. I would get the, get the board out, get the dry erase board. Uh, I can't do it. But so it's not that, just to put it simply, there's lots of copies of manuscripts that are out there that, uh, that we have found that date to pretty early. And the earliest ones, the most reliable ones, don't have it. And those that do have it, there are six different varieties. Six. One just adds amen. The other one says, because yours is the power forever. Another one says, because yours is the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because yours is the kingdom and the glory forever. Another one is, which is what's included in this footnote, because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the sixth one is, because yours is the kingdom and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. All of them are later editions, and not all of them not included in the handwritten original. 
Again, this is this issue of textual criticism. There's, there's many other passages in your Bible that uh, are included in there because historically they've always been there in later translations, but in newer manuscripts that we found, they're just not, they're just not there. The, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John's Gospel, chapter 8. Probably not there, not original. The ending, the longer ending of Mark's Gospel with the whole thing about picking up snakes and getting bitten by venomous snakes and not dying... Probably not original. So simply put, these are not. Well, then why pray them? Oh, good question. Well, the early church prayed the Lord's Prayer every week in their services, in their liturgy. And they, they likely just added these. They were part of their liturgical services as a kind of a closing doxology. That, that's probably why they're there. It's because they used the Lord's Prayer as a part of their prayers in their services. But it wasn't just that one. They would grab scriptural prayers from all over the place. Very likely, this is, this is what I think is probably what happened, is they're pulling a prayer from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, which reads this. Notice the similarity. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as the head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is, it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Perhaps from there. Which is a great prayer to pray. You should probably find this in First Chronicles chapter 29 and put a bracket around this. Make this your prayer. And I was asked last week, so what do you think about scripted prayers? Ethan had asked me about this. There's a friend of his who had kind of given the sense that unless you have purely spontaneous prayers, that they're somehow less genuine. Well, let, let me tell you, uh, and I, the answer I gave back to Ethan was something along these lines. We get together to sing songs. We didn't compose those this morning. Right? Beth, like, did you make those words up while we were singing? Those were not spontaneous. So if, if, it's, if you don't need spontaneity, you have practice. You have words that everybody would know. That's okay. I think that that's also true in prayer. Now, I'm not saying it should be exclusively that. You should, we should learn how to pray spontaneously. But one of the ways that you learn how to pray spontaneously is to be taught how to pray. Jesus himself said, pray like this. So perhaps it's that one, 1 Chronicles 29. Or this, something similar from Revelation Revelation chapter 5, And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Very similar. Just doesn't have the amen. Well, we go to Revelation 7 then. How about this? And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So why pray them? Well, why not? It's a fine prayer. It's a wonderful doxology. It echoes many of the scriptural prayers that we find all throughout the Bible, like the three we looked at here, plus many others. 
But I'll say this. We don't pray these words because they were originally part of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's Gospel. We pray them because they very closely reflect the scriptural doxologies prayed in many places, both Old Testament and New Testament. Okay? So we pray them. When we're praying them, we're not putting words into Jesus' mouth when we pray them. We're putting God's word into ours. Because those words are reflected in many other places in Scripture. And so when we pray it, we're reminding ourselves that the outcome of our prayers does not come from any worthiness in ourselves, but in God alone. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. This is our Lord's Prayer. And those are some of the reflections that I think of when I think of and when I pray that Lord's Prayer, to have these in, your, in the back of your mind. And may, uh, may they be in your mind as, as well. So let's, having heard the wonderful, gracious words of our Lord Jesus and teaching us disciples how to pray, let's pray these together as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. So let's say these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand together as we pray for our Lord's Supper. Gracious God, we thank you for teaching us from your word and feeding us from, from Scripture as you teach us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we thank you for feeding us with your word this morning, and now we thank you for feeding us with the supper of our Lord the meal he, he gave to, uh, to mark for us the gospel, that we take these signs mindful of what it is that they signify, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that we have forgiveness of sins in the new covenant of his blood. And so we come as believers with joy, grateful to come to this table and to receive these together as these good gifts from your hand. And so we pray with thanks, ask your blessing upon it as we take this together in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen and amen.